before, before we fully get into this, uh, as people start to trickle in, um, Jake Pavorsky is a good buddy of mine, former Liberty Ballers, editor-in-chief, is that your title? I think managing editor was probably the official title, but same thing. Um, back at Espination during the, the peak of the Sam Hankey process years, um, where both of us kind of got our starts, and Jake ended up making a, a pretty cool pivot into uh, being the director of player personnel and head of PR for the basketball tournament, which you're probably watching on ESPN. Uh, so cool to have you here, man. Thank you for joining in. I appreciate it. No, no doubt. Appreciate you having me on. Have you just been like following the tournament around the country and going wherever you know the, the ball takes you? <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, we just wrapped up uh, our championship week in Dayton on Tuesday night. Uh, so basically, it was three straight weeks. Three straight weeks on the road for me, starting in Omaha, then in Cincinnati, then in Charleston, West Virginia, and then wrapping up with our quarter semis and finals and. In Dayton. So you spend about, you know, 11 and a half months or so, you know, preparing for a two and a half week tournament, three week tournament, and then it's just full go and uh, wrapped it up with a good uh, championship game on Tuesday, gave away a million dollars like we do every summer and uh, now uh, enjoying what, what uh, kind of off season I have now in front of me as well. So this is the one question outside of the, the obvious Elon ending stuff that I thought about for you today as I was biking around Brooklyn this morning. TBT is not remotely like live golf in any way. I want to be clear. In my, maybe someone thinks it is. I'm not saying that. However, the concept of uh, a non-MBA entity bringing high-level basketball on nationally televised scale to the public, this is really the only – TBT is really the only thing – that remotely exists, uh, from my understanding, in the continental United States that, like, has this level of, you know, high-level former D1 guys. C.J. Massenburg just won the, um, the MVP this year, right? And, like, he was someone I remember thinking had a shot at making the league, but certain guys don't ever really have the opportunity. And I slip with the cracks, what have you. They make personal decisions to go to Europe, all that jazz. Um, but this is a long preamble to say, you know, I have been curious thinking about live and thinking about just conceptually, the NBA is the most individualized team sport that we have. And it is so personality and, you know, brand driven for these players from your experience of, of, of being on you know the front lines, Jake, of compiling these teams together, be for someone to come and do a link to the NBA compared to the PGA from your from your educated guest standpoint. You cut out there for about two seconds at the end of the question. Could you sum that one up again for me again, real quick? How difficult do you do you posit it would be for a, a rival entity? to try to do what Live Golf is doing to the PGA, to the NBA? Oh, yeah, I think it would be incredibly difficult. Uh, and it would also take a Live-like amount of money to be able to pull it off. Uh, anytime you go up against the, the big bad wolf, it's it's always going to be difficult to launch 
that kind of property to entice the right amount of guys to play in the, both the, not from like, like you said, from a personality standpoint, but also from a play standpoint uh, to make it worthwhile, you know, launching. And then obviously there's a broadcast rights, you know, topic as well, which you're kind of seeing with live is they're playing on YouTube right now for in front of, you know, five figures worth of people, uh, you know, making sure you're able to get that attention and to have that attention and hold it. Uh, for you know, a period that you know would rival the NBA season would be incredibly long. But I think that's kind of why TBT works, right? We fall into this window, you know, that's right after summer league, uh, you know, right before even like the NFL preseason, and a lot of these guys go back overseas, uh, and then obviously you have training camp starting in September, so it allows us to be you know kind of quick and mobile and kind of drop into a window where there isn't really high level sports being played, and to be able to you know offer. Uh, a presentation of guys that are really good basketball players. We had sev- over 70 ex-NBA players in TBT this year, uh, the most we've ever had. We had 28 alumni teams, the most we've ever had. We had our first ever draft-eligible team in Team Overtime, uh, which featured uh, Auser and Eamon Thompson, who are you know likely lottery picks in next year's draft. And when you mix all that together and you add in the Elam ending and high stakes and single elimination, uh, it just creates an incredible product. But part of the reason why it works is because we fall into this window where uh, we're able to basically just own the space. And I think the combination of all those things is what has made it so special. All right. That's a, that's a, that's a buzzy thing you just said in, in, in the Thompson Twins. When we had Jeremy Wu on last week, the draft insider for Sports Illustrated, he didn't necessarily was, it was say it was so cut and dry, but I've definitely – Heard from scout friends that like it's basically Victor Wembanyama, Scoot Henderson, and the Thompson twins, and and the rest of the pack, and that can change obviously, but that's generally where things stand right now. I mean, you only saw them in an exhibition environment, but what do you think? What's your amateur scouting take on on those two guys? Uh, I I thought that they were really impressive, just given the level that they've been playing at and kind of facing mostly high school competition and not really playing much against pros yet to come into TBT and to an environment on a, a true road game, playing at Creighton university against the Creighton alumni team uh, and to do so on national television and kind of your first real foray into legitimate, you know, against pro basketball talent. I, I thought those guys handled their own. I mean, they both started the game off with ferocious, ferocious dunks. One had a, a drive down the lane. The other had a great putback. Uh, and you can just see the athleticism is just off the charts with those guys. Uh, you know, athletically, vertically, up and down, like off the dribble, but also, you know, help side, making blocks and coming across and just making really heady defensive plays. Uh, all that stuff was on display. Uh, really, you know, handles is kind of coming together well. They're getting to the basket. And uh, I, I thought that there's the pieces there for, you know, potential legit NBA superstar talent there. Now we'll see as other things evolve and as their body starts to build and get better. Uh, you know, how the rest of their games take shape. I think they know as much as anyone else knows that the jumper is kind of the next thing to come together for them. But for those guys to step into TBT, which they've never played before in a new rule setting with the Elam ending. And again, to do so in a hostile environment against guys like Marcus Foster, who's played in the NBA um, and is now a high level guy overseas and, you know, talent like that. Uh, I thought they, they really held their own and, and really impressed everyone in the game that they you know very well could have won. Uh, so all in all, I think it was a really solid TBT debut. And uh, I think, again, it's another thing that TBT can provide for a lot of guys. It's just an opportunity and a look at the next level. And I've you know, talked to about a dozen NBA teams that were really interested in that film and 
seeing how those guys played at that level and, you know, hopefully them playing as well as they did in that game is, uh, you know, a little notch in their belt as, as teams evaluate them for top three, top five picks next year. Why do you forgive my ignorance? Why do teams have to go through you guys in order to get film? That's not just like automatically filed into synergy somewhere. Not on synergy just yet. Uh, working with, hand in hand with the league to get officially sanctioned as a scouting event. Not there oh, wow. yet. We're hoping that will come to fruition very soon as we continue to work with them. But in the meantime, just through general contacts in the league was kind of able to offer the film that I had from that game. And uh, obviously there was a lot of interest, you know, top to bottom and, and getting their hands on that and seeing it. Specifically because of the Thompson twins, or do you think there was some type of interest from scouts just checking in on these guys that have been in Europe for a little bit? It's, it's certainly, obviously the Thompson twins were kind of the, the main course there, but without a doubt, it's, it's both as well. Uh, we've had, I think since TBT started, had 60 guys sign NBA deals, uh, 10 or so replacement players last year, Devon Reed, who played for the Miami alumni team, you know, caught on with a two-way, and now he's stuck with the Nuggets. Kiefer Sykes was with the Pacers for most of the year last year. So without a doubt, whether it's, you know, for G League spots or for, you know, kind of the end of NBA roster spots, uh, you know, all 32 teams are, are evaluating, all 30 teams, excuse me, are evaluating TBT uh, as a, you know, real scouting platform for these guys. And I think it's another pitch for us and uh, another realization for them that if they come in and play well, uh, there are legit opportunities for them at, at the next level. And, you know, whether it's moving up the ladder in Europe or, you know, moving from Europe to the NBA, TBT can help guys do that. And that pitch, you're making that to agents of these players, to the players themselves. I remember back in the day, just from talking to you, you would like even slide into guys' DMs on Instagram trying to recruit them. Like, what's kind of the process like for you now versus when you first got started? Yeah, it's it's definitely a combination of those things. I still think even though, you know, nine years in, you know, there's still a bit of an education process for a lot of guys and representation and just in how TBT works. I think there's still some, you know, sort of uh, misunderstanding of kind of the platform TBT is and the kind of talent and organization that comes with TBT. And it's still, you know, a process that you try and win people over day by day in terms of what it can provide people. But I think at least on the player side of things, anyone who's ever, you know, getting them in the door, especially in the earlier years of TBT was always the hardest thing, but the amount of guys who return year over year, I mean, there are very few guys who after experiencing this in year one, don't want to come back and play it, you know, so many years, you know, again and again and again. And I think that's why you've seen, a lot of our guys return overseas elite in the early years when they won, you know, four straight titles, guys like Mike Dom, Marcus Keene, college legends, Jimmer Fredette, you know, guys who are superstars who've kind of become mainstays in the TBT field. Uh, there's a reason they want to come back and play in it. And I think uh, more and more guys are realizing that and uh, enjoying, you know, not only the opportunity to play high level basketball in the summer, but to do so on a national platform and to kind of make or remake a name for themselves in the States. Yeah, you see guys trending on Twitter, um, and I have to imagine the elimination game environment is something that a lot of these dudes are just craving, right? Like, it's 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 the best off-season run in terms of, like, stakes and pressure you could probably find. Without a doubt. Uh, and it's kind of what makes TBT unique. You know, there's no real single-game elimination scenario at the pro level. Uh, and I think – there are a lot of guys, you know, if there are some guys who do just kind of want to take their summers to relax and hang out and do some cardio or some boxing and just kick it. But 
for the guys who are real competitors who want that action, who want to be diving on the floor for loose balls and hustling to, you know, try and win their team a title. Uh, this is the place for them. And you can see that intensity, even kind of as you get into the later third quarter and early fourth, before the yield mending and players start to realize we're getting closer, you know, we got to pick it up to either cut down a deficit or to open up a lead or, you know, try and get this thing tied up. Uh, just you can kind of feel the, the intensity heighten amongst those guys and kind of the, the air get a little thinner in the crowd as, as people start to realize, you know, what we're getting down to in, in the ends of these games. It's, it's really special, and it's, it's, it's something that we've been fortunate enough to, to channel, that energy and that intensity, and I think uh, it's, it's tough to replicate it in, in a lot of other ways in a lot of other sports and a lot of other places. This is really why I wanted to bring you on, cause not only because you're my guy, but the, 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 the midseason tournament's going to happen in the NBA. It just is. It's going to be some David Stern Commissioner's Cup type of thing. And this is not me reporting that it's going to happen this year, to be clear. But it's something that's obviously been discussed about for a while. And they've already, I mean, last year in the G League, um, the startup kind of tournament they did that culminated at the showcase in Vegas, like where teams had tournament games and then they qualified for the playoffs and then went through the playoff picture at the showcase um, before uh, um, they ultimately got to a championship game that had financial incentive. Like the league is going to try to, they're using that as a testing ground to try to figure out how to, get a real mid-season or early, whatever it is, whether it's something that's in the beginning of this of the year that culminates on Christmas or if they do it at the All-Star break, it's just the, the NBA is, is absolutely considering and weighing multi, multi, multi different options um, to try to figure out how to do some more excitement into, um, into the regular season. And, the Elam ending obviously is something that's on their radar because they're using it at the all-star game. And that's not, that's not a coincidence. They don't just pluck that out of thin air because it works at TBT and they think it could be a fun experiment. They're, they're looking at it to see what the, the interest can be on a, on a national NBA level. And it's provided some moments so far, LeBron's game winner in Cleveland, just as February was a storyline and a talking point and something that, really was discussed a lot in the post-game media room. So, I don't know, Jake, what's kind of your sense, if you even have one, on, like, the NBA's interest in the Elam ending? Have they been asking you guys about it, all that, all that jazz? Um, or just what are your general thoughts on how effective it is in terms of juicing drama and, and what it could do for the next stage of, of basketball? Yeah, not aware of any conversations around the Elam ending specific to a midseason tournament. Obviously, as they were planning to use it for the All-Star game, there were some conversations, you know, with Nick Elam, who is the creator of the Elam ending, and, and our team as well uh, about instituting that. Uh, but I think, I think the Elam ending at pro basketball on a wider scale beyond TBT is inevitable, just like a midseason tournament is. And I think it would really be special. Um, you know, as we were kind of talking about bringing on the Elam ending uh, in 2017 and seeing it in our playing tournament before enacting it for our entire tournament starting in 2018, uh, our CEO, John, was like, if we if the Elam ending was kind of the rule that people use to start 
when basketball was first initiated and as opposed to an actual game clock, if we ever said, you know, let's go from the Elam menu to a game clock, people would lose their minds. It's at the end of the day, this is basketball closer to its purest form. It's exciting. It's fun. Every game ends in a game winner, uh, whether it's a dunk or a three or a layup or even a free throw. When you saw in the, you know, the all-star game in year one with Anthony Davis, there's a lot of pressure on there. And those moments are fun too. You know, even just seeing if those guys can, can live up to that moment and knock down those shots to hit that target score. But the intensity and the, the stakes that come with that as you're getting closer to that, that target score, uh, I think makes it all the more worth it. And when you're seeing a lot of games at high levels that don't necessarily have much stakes to it or, or not always matter, uh, I think the Elam ending kind of brings that back. It allows teams who are down the opportunity to come back and, and try and win games without having to go through the typical mechanisms they do with fouling and timeouts and really dragging out the end of games. All you got to do is lock down, play good defense, and go down and score a couple buckets, and you're back in it. And I think at the end of the day, uh, people want to have more reason to watch games. They want to watch better games, and they want to watch more intense games that have value. And I think we've been able to can channel and, and capture all that with Elam ending, and uh, other leagues should be able to do that as well. In Canada, the CEBL, that new upstart pro league that has you know, been in, in the business for a couple years now, they've adopted this, the Elam ending. They love it up there. It's been super effective for them. And uh, you know, there are some supporters of the Elam ending around the league, whether it's Chris Paul or Daryl Morey, guys like that. Uh, I think it, it makes a ton of sense for the NBA and especially the league that wants to kind of be on the cutting edge and to take things to the next level. The Elam ending is, is a bit of a no-brainer for them. You've got a bit of a PR brain. I think an important uh, piece of, of these conversations is when you make a change, how easily can you communicate it to the public? Like, we, like there was definitely a lot of confusion around the playing tournament when they first debuted it. Like, a lot of people didn't understand, or, or the league didn't roll it out in a way that made it really palatable that, oh, nine plays 10, seven plays eight, and then you got the eight, nine game for the eights. You know what I mean? Like, right. like it wasn't, they, the brackets was weird, whatever. Like, what are the layman's terms? How do you easily communicate to the masses what the target score is and how do you get there? I, you know, there is definitely an education process with that stuff, and, and some of it does take a little bit of time. I think the simplest way to put it is that the first dead ball under the four-minute mark, uh, you add eight points to the leading team score. So if the score is 60-52, you play to 68, and the first one to 68 wins. Uh, it's kind of the simplest and easiest way to go about doing it. And I think, uh, you know, once you see it in action for the first time and you realize what it means, it's, it's essentially the – professional version of playing the 21 or to 11 or whatever it might be at the park. You know, the first one to this score wins and it's, it's just game on. Whoever can get there first is, is the winner. And I think that that mentality and that kind of bringing it back to the park a little bit and just kind of basketball at its purest form is just sort of the best way to explain it. Now, obviously there will always be some detractors and some people who are a little confused in the intricacies of it, but the, the more you watch it and you see it in action, uh, the more it makes sense and the more you understand how valuable this is to the game of basketball and where it's headed, where attention spans are headed and um, just the need to be able to provide more memorable moments, you know, across the board with sports and in basketball in general is a lot of some of these games kind of, you know, fizzle out towards the end. Uh, the Elam ending is able to provide that. And I think from a fan standpoint too, I mean, just the energy that, that surrounds those final moments when your team is the one that hits that shot, whether it's a long three or, 
you know, an alley-oop in transition or something to, to win your team that game. Uh, it's a pretty, you see some pretty visceral reactions, you know, to the way these games end. And it's just fun. Like basketball needs to be more fun. You know, I think TBT and what we've tried to do is just focus as much as we can on the product and not sort of the theatrics around the game itself, but to really focus on the game. And I think the Elam ending is something that has been able to take the game to the next level. And if you want to give people a reason to care about a midseason tournament that uh, nobody really, you know, at this current moment has a reason to care about otherwise, the Elam ending is a fantastic way to at least be able to capture some attention and for people to see, let's see how it goes. And once they watch it, you know, for the, I, there have been very few people who have watched it and have not fallen in love with it. And I think that could be the case at the NBA level as well. Yeah, it's it's got it's got a real leg to stand on. I really do believe that. Um, well, I mean, overall, you're you're a couple years in now to your to your ride there. Obviously, you were exploring the media route, but on a on a personal basis, how uh, I mean, looking back, like how how has your basketball career began compared to where what you were originally kind of hoping for? Yeah, it's it's been a cool ride, and I think the pivot was the right decision, uh, just away from sports journalism and sports media. As much as I enjoyed that and the opportunities um, it led me to, which also led me to TBT, as I kind of used that Liberty Ballers platform to enter a TBT team in the early years when it was in Philadelphia. I think, as you know from doing this, and you know, you kind of making some pivots in your own, I think, in a sense, and kind of focusing more on the author path as opposed to the sports writing path and now back in sports writing i think you need to know that you know that you know that it's not easy to find your footing and to be able to to stand tall and to you know be able to make a legitimate enjoyable career out of it and i think as someone who just tried to bust their butt from like 17 to 22 to find a leg to stand on the business i think i was able to do that but at the end of the day it just wasn't really what i wanted from it and i think i had just kind of burnt myself out and i, I think tbt is a true one of one job in basketball uh, I think I'm, I've always loved the game and I'm fortunate to be around the game and to, to work with players and coaches and agents and to uh, be able to you know and on the PR side obviously a lot of the media contacts that I built up through the, the sports media side of it but uh, no regrets at all about the path I'm on and you know again even the sports media path helped lead me to this one and, and to where I'm at now but certainly made the right decision and uh, really much enjoying the, the ride that, that we're on with TBT. Yeah, man. It really does feel like a long time ago, like 2013, playing pickup with against the uh, EV hoops guys. <laughs> like it, it was, it definitely, it definitely was a. You, you reached a mountaintop, so congrats, man. It's very cool to see what the tournament's grown into, and, and you being one of the the driving forces behind. It's very cool to see. But there's a lot of. Uh quality alumni from those Liberty Ballers days between yourself and, and Derek Bodner, who's had a lot of success in the Sixers beat, Kyle Newbeck, Mike Levin, successful writer now out in LA doing lots of TV shows. You know, I, the list goes on, Mike Bauman at the, at the ringer. Uh, and I was a, a pretty, pretty special class of writers there that uh, pretty tough to challenge, challenge, you know, that kind of talent under one roof, uh, you know, anywhere else. One day there'll be a, some Philly mag article about it or something like that. Um, all right, man. Is there, is there a story, a memory, a funny incident from those Liberty Ballers days that comes to mind that you hold dear, that you think back on 
when there's a good Sixers moment that makes you feel nostalgic? Man, I, I think I, I just remember the uh, that first watch party that we had at like Miller's Ale House, and I guess that was 2013 for the draft party, yeah. and just the the video that came out after that. You know, half of us are at Miller's Ale House, but half of us are across the country, and Mike's on a couch in L.A. and Justin F., who's one of our writers, is in I don't know his bedroom somewhere or whatever, and just all the the reactions, you know, to how those games went or to how those picks went and how the night went. And just not to mention, you go in there and you think there's going to be like 25 people just hunkered around a bar, or, you know, whatever. You, you shake a couple hands and see a couple friends and that's it. And basically, you know, you're kind of wall to wall there, shoulder to shoulder. You know, you can barely uh, breathe in there. I think that was kind of the, just you look back on that and just realize how special that was. And to go from that to, I don't know, a couple thousand people at the Xfinity Center, or, yeah, Xfinity Live, uh, you know, as you're raising, raising a, a banner of Sam Hinkie into the Raptors, which I forget if it's still hanging in there or not. But, uh, you know, you just look back on some of that stuff and you realize how, how crazy and, and chaotic some of those moments were and just kind of the, the beginnings you started from. It's uh, it's pretty funny to think about. Um, that I wrote this in the acknowledgments of my book, um, but that Miller Ale House night was when I first realized it was a, it was a story that I wanted to, to chronicle at, at length. Like at first I thought it was going to be, that was back when the long form was like such a huge thing. Those really beautiful internet designs where you would scroll down and be some massive photo spread. Sometimes there was some cool auto playing video stuff that, um, that New York times snowfall piece was kind of the, the the trendsetter i guess of that era they had this whole like 360 um kind of recreation data visual visualization type stuff um to accompany the story and then it ended up becoming the basis of a book along along the way so it definitely was a time man it was uh it's really very formative of my career too being that like to be in the eye of the uh, of there are many hurricanes happening across the nba landscape all, all the time now, right now there's a kevin durant and Dylan mitchell you know systems right rifling their way across vastly different parts of the country but the process years was certainly one of them and uh how could you not learn a lot and be prepared for a life in basketball being on the front lines of that debate of of tanking and analytics and what have you no doubt I, I think and just the opportunities that came from it to be able to cover nba drafts for several years you know i, I remember the first, the first year i covered the draft i slept on elliot short parks who was doing you know is now big big time eagles beat writer was doing sixers coverage at the time and i like slept on his floor uh, of his uh, hotel room in brooklyn you know just to be able to go and, and cover that stuff and and even the following year which i don't think i've ever told the story publicly but um when I wrote, I think it was actually, I said same year that I, uh, it was my first year of the draft and I basically wrote like a behind the scenes of the draft and my seat on that, on press row there is like right behind Woj's. And, uh, I basically just wrote like everything I saw and heard that night, which was just so stupid to do. But as a 16, 17 year old kid, you just, you know, you don't know any better. And I remember I wrote something in there about something someone said about, uh, a player, you know, a nickname they called him and it was just dumb. But anyway, I ended up receiving... <laughs> a DM from Woj the next day saying, Hey, you know, can you give me a shout? Uh, I would like to talk to you. Cause I wrote something about him basically just like not being nice. You know, we were standing near him. We all used writing or doing something important while we were just dicking around. And 
he said, uh, you know, I basically said he was just, you know, he wasn't being a nice guy. So sends me a DMs, you know, saying to call him. And I'm like, well, my writing career has just started at 16. And now it's like officially over. This guy is just going to like, you know, pummel me through the earth. And uh, that's, that's it for me. And I got on the phone with him and, you know, he couldn't have been nicer. It was a super, A, it was apologetic to me for, you know, being rude, which he probably wasn't. Again, he was just doing his job. And, you know, one of the concentrators working six phones at once and just, you know, three 18-year-old kids just kind of, I think it was probably you, me, and Tyler Tynes just hanging around bothering him. And uh, it was it was such a funny moment, you know, just thinking this guy's apologizing to me when I would want to be like, I'm the one who messed up. You know, it's my fault. And, uh, you know, it was cool to, to kind of have that moment as well. So, that's I don't know if I've ever told that Woj story to anyone publicly before, but uh, Woj is always good in my book. That was uh, it was a cool moment for me, and uh, one that went from really embarrassing and you know potentially deadly career wise to one that uh, I'll never forget for sure. All right, man, it's been about a half hour. We had our question from Matthew. Matthew left the queue. Um, if anyone's got a question before we get on out of here, please do. Um, as always, you got to make an account to do so. Once you do, you can uh, follow the show. Please don't aggregate this and subscribe, and you'll get updates and push notifications whenever we're going live and all all that. Um, if we don't have any questions, I'll do my my typical. We got we got a question from Charlie, but I will ask Jake. It's, I feel like it's only fair. I asked you a bunch of stuff for the last half hour. Do you got anything you wanna you wanna hit me with? Do I have anything I want to hit you with? Uh, I, I guess what's what is the next? Are, are you working on a next big project? What is sort of the general themes of next big projects? I feel like you always have something longer up your sleeve while you're you're delving into the day to days of the the NBA minutia. What's uh, what's next for you? Thanks, man. Um, figuring out some stuff ahead of next season, which is all exciting. Um, and then there is a second book that I'm trying to finish up soon. Um, I will say, uh, we lost Charlie Saturday, Charlie, come back up here, man. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I haven't really been able to work on it as much as I thought I would be this month because I've just been distracted by things, but, uh, I should be getting back to that tomorrow. Um, so looking forward to that. And, uh, yeah, that's really all I can say right now. Good deal. All right. All right. Charlie Saturday. And thank you for asking, uh, Charlie Saturday to bring us on home. What's going on, man. What's up fellas, man. A DM from Woj saying the column would just send a shiver down my spine. I can't, I can't even imagine how you got through that, Jake. No doubt. That was a terrifying moment for sure. So I was at uh, Rucker Park a few weeks ago. So much fun. Longtime TBT fan. And, um, you know, I this is something I've kind of been obsessed with about all of these guys that are on the fringes of the league, of the NBA, that go overseas and are still really good and still getting better. But, you know, they're 28 and they maybe become afterthoughts. But I'm wondering, you know, if you were to – see a G league that had all of these guys that could pay um, enough to keep them in the U in the U S like what the benefits would be of them playing against some of these young guys on rookie deals. Cause everybody talks about Luca in the Euro league um, and how much better that made him. But like we, we could do that with, especially with all the American talent we have overseas. But um, I'm just wondering what, 
what that would sort of look like in your eyes to see the TBT guys stay home. Yeah, I, I think it would be, you know, it's funny, the more I talk to these guys and get to know them and the more they get into kind of that like late 20s, early 30s stages of their career, they all want to stay home. Like none of these guys really want to go overseas. Uh, they don't always love the living conditions. Obviously during COVID stuff, it was pretty miserable. A lot of these guys don't get paid on time or even get paid at all in some cases. It really, you know, there's not a big governance body over there. So if the, well, the, only, the only thing that brings them back every year is, is the money, obviously. The, the salaries are in, you know, most of those bigger countries and bigger leagues uh, are, you know, five to ten times what you would make in the G League, you know, even on a smaller scale. You know, that could be, you know, 20 to 30 for a lot of these guys. But uh, I, I think it is, and it's funny, it's just there is so much talent outside of the NBA. Uh, and I think it, it only, you see that in basketball. And it's why these kind of upstart football leagues and a lot of those other leagues don't really have success um, is because the talent that's in the NFL is supposed to be there and the talent that isn't, isn't there for a reason. Um, but I, I think it would make for a compelling product. I think it would give guys a lot of value, especially the younger guys playing in the G League to try and figure out where to go. But I think it would also make those games so much more compelling. I mean, if the G League was really willing to kind of up their salaries, even to like 75, you know, to, to try and make those, those games more, those teams more competitive. Um, I think you would see an uptick in interest. I think you would see an uptick in the watchability of those games, the intensity of those games. And I think in those, in those markets too, um, just how much more interested people would be in those teams. It kind of feels some of those games feel like glorified exhibitions a little bit when you get up in the, the 130s and the 140s. And it would be nice to – I just think about this blue-collar U team. I was thinking about this the other night, that one TBT the other night on Tuesday. The perfect TBT team, the perfect you know kind of basketball team in general, three great scorers and C.J. Massenburg, Wes Clark, and Nick Perkins and a lot of guys who fit around them. How would they fare in a G-League-type setting? And I think a team that cares that much, that's that talented, um, that has that much chemistry, but also plays that tough, I think could really do some damage in a league like that. And hopefully – uh, you know, the G League kind of gets to a point where they're willing to kind of step up and pay these guys a little bit more because I really think it would make – take that product to the next level and, and to make it a little bit more viable than it is right now. Good stuff, Jake. Just a quick follow-up from from what you know about how these teams operate. If there were a world where a, an NBA team could have, you know, instead of two two-way contracts, you know, five, six, seven two-way contracts, which really in the in the – scheme of things isn't more than like an extra three million dollar budget do you think that if it like they could get owners to sign on or are they that stingy where an extra four million to get like a you know a really good uh euro league caliber g league roster they wouldn't be up for that yeah i i feel and, and jake can kind of chime in on this too i, I think the g league at this point is kind of guys who are either sort of just get their start or just kind of veteran filler types who are just sort of there. Um, I, I don't know how much they'd be willing to kind of dump into that two-way space to try and make that better. I do think if they were to expand that to, you know, th five spots or something like that, you definitely see a lot of the TBT guys, you know, that would typically play kind of be taken away from, <laughs> from TBT to play on, on the NBA two-way contracts. Cause we, you know, every once in a while we get a couple of those guys to do it. And I think, Again, that, that margin between TBT and the types of guys who play in that, you know, to the NBA is so thin. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these guys, I, I, I got to think the amount of guys who stir percentage-wise of guys who stick from two ways is like 
10%, 15%. Jake, do you think that's, that's even that high? I have no idea. And I don't want to say a number without, I mean, it would be a completely uninformed uh, estimate. Um, but I, I will say, I'll go on record in saying that to me, it's very obvious that to make the G League an, an unabashed success, all the NBA has to do is find a way to carve something out of the BRI to pay these guys more and to be able to pay the coaches more. It would just be there's too many coaches who end up leaving the NBA bubble for Europe or college or what have you. There's too many players who end up, you know, they can't they can't wait it out any longer at the G League level and they just have to go overseas for their family. Yeah. Versus, I mean, to me, the NBA, it, it's, you know, the richest, most most attended to, most observed, most social media engaged, whatever basketball league on the planet. They should be able to find a way to offer up salaries that are competitive with the top Euro league so that they're getting guys like Luka Doncic to play in the G League before he comes into the league instead of in Spain or whatever. Like that, that to me, if I was running the NBA, that's, that would be honestly one of my top objectives because also you're, you're developing these next generation of superstars and creating must-see games and what have you in your own umbrella and that's probably adding into your tv um deal that comes up in 2025 and so on like that would be something i would be trying to really focus on but it's never really seemed to be something that the nba has wanted to truly invest in and at the very least if they wanted to drop the eel mending in the g league as a test case for a year just to see how it goes on a broader scale with more teams and more games i think even that as a starting point would make the G League more interesting and to give them kind of a leg up. You know, I think that's what the G League should be used for anyways, a testing ground for a lot of these opportunities that the NBA is considering sort of installing. And I think they've done it to a degree, but if they really want to see they're serious about the deal amending and they want to see how it works, give it a shot down there for a year and see how that goes. There you go. All right. He is Jake Pavorsky. Uh Anything you want to plug, man, or whatever on your way out you're not you're not a you're not a writer anymore i don't really know what what, what you plug your tournament's over yeah there's you, if you caught me like three weeks ago there would have been just endless plugs here uh i don't know my twitter's linked on this this app's pro my profile on this app um you can visit us on the tournament.com at the tournament on twitter the dot tournament on instagram uh we just wrapped up year nine year 10 on the way next year uh, a lot of cool stuff coming up in the next year i think I think uh, it's worth staying tuned to us to see what, what's going on and uh, the types of stuff that, that we add to the table for year 10 for us. I think it's going to be pretty special. There you go, man. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. We will be back next week, um, I believe, on Tuesday afternoon with Peter Vesey, uh, the original NBA newsbreaker. So that'll be fun to talk to him. Thank you, Jake. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in again. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you have a nice weekend. Stay safe out there. Take care. All right. Talk soon. Thanks, man.